Hi, this is Dan Sullivan, and I'd like to welcome you to a very special episode of Inside Strategic Coach. And what makes it special, I mean, it's always special with Shannon Waller, but what's really special is proof of concept, because we have Nick Constantino, who has been in Strategic Coach for 20 years, and we're going to talk about a lot of things, but one of the things in particular is a scorecard, a mindset scorecard that he's created called the Ideal Business. So, Nick, could you just kind of fill people in in the usual American thing, where you're from, what got you into the entrepreneurial world, and how you've progressed in the entrepreneurial world? 20 years that I know about, because I've been with you for 20 years. I'm like the teacher who gets to stay with the students, you know. Anyway, and I'm a student, too, because I'm taught by my clients. So, Nick, a little background, and then we'll dive right into your scorecard, The Ideal Business. Sure. Thanks, Dan, and thanks for having me today. So, I am one of those entrepreneurs who grew up in a very blue-collar family. My father was a New York City fireman, so he was unfortunately disabled when I was very young. And we go back to the 1970s. I think I was maybe 12 years old at the time. So I uh, basically started my entrepreneurial career then because we lived on a fixed income. We had Social Security and a disability pension, and that really didn't cover it. So if you wanted something beyond just uh, food on your plate, you had to go get it. So I remember having three different jobs when I was a young boy, 14 years old. I learned how to be a short order cook at a coffee shop. I lived in Long Island, so I dug clams in the Great South Bay during the summer months. And I had a paper route that I delivered papers for as well. So I did that right through high school. And then, you know, there was no money for college either, so I had to put myself through school. And that's when I learned how to wait tables and bartend. There was a part of my upbringing where I worked at this restaurant on a resort beach called Fire Island. This was my introduction to sales, where the kitchen would have maybe one or two items of the special left, and they would 86 the board, and they would tell me, hey, Nick, go sell the last two pieces of prime rib to the next table. So I would immediately go out there and convince the table that I was serving that they needed to order this prime rib because, you know, it's delicious, blah, blah, blah. But also I knew that the bigger the check, the bigger the tip, right? So I always went in that relationship where if I could get the check bigger, I knew I can get the tip bigger, which means I would get paid more, right? So that job actually put me through college. I made enough money from Memorial Day to Labor Day to pay my tuition. And I went to school out in the Boston area. I went to a Bentley University. You know, it was interesting. My summer was full of work, which, you know, we would work 70 to 80 hours a week, which would be very normal. And I was exhausted by the time I got to school. And plus, I had to earn my way. So when I got to school, I went to the library and studied while everybody else went. You know, it was time for them to go out and party and drink and do everything else. And I said, ah, nah, it's okay. You know, this is my hard-earned money, and I'm going to make sure that I get every dime's worth out of it. So my career then took me, it was interesting, is that my senior year, I got an internship for an insurance company because back in the 1980s, financial planning was selling life insurance. So I went into that role where I was simply their intern. They hired me. That was the late 80s when we were in recession. So getting a job was just really important. And I was doing data entry and I was working the technology side of the, the business, doing their financial plans because nobody else knew how to use a computer back then. 
So I will never forget that we were doing financial planning seminars and I was entering all the information into the database and there was a big stack of names where people didn't check off whether or not they wanted to be contacted. So I went to my boss at the time and I said, well, what do you want me to do with these? And he said, well, well, what do you want to do with them? I said, well, maybe they forgot to check off the box. So I started cold calling and I would stay late at night, you know, a couple of nights a week. And I realized that I was good at it. I would get people on the phone and then they would say, oh, yeah, I was waiting for your call. And, you know, we saying, oh, yeah, I'm really sorry. We're really busy. We're overwhelmed. But, you know, I'm going to make an appointment and come out and take the data. And then my boss is going to come out and make recommendations. And, you know, just like everything else, I'm making this up as I go along because I have absolutely no idea what I'm doing. I'm, you know, 23 years old, right out of college. So, again, while all of my friends were out at the bar scene after work, I had my second shift. I'd work till 5 o'clock. I would typically go to the gym and I would start cold calling at 6.30 and I'd work till 9, 9.30 at night. And I did that four nights a week. So I realized that I was really a natural salesperson. <laughs> that led me into an introduction that changed my career. One of the people that became a client at that time, the big client at the time was New England Telephone. The insurance company that I had worked for at the onset had a selling arrangement with New England Telephone. So if you were a life insurance agent with Phoenix Mutual Life, you had the permission from New England Telephone to come on the property in order to sell life insurance. So everyone was trying to get introduced to the vice president of employee benefits because we wanted to expand the relationship. And here I was maybe 24, 25 at the time, and I was doing some pro bono planning work for one of the HR directors. And he says to me, he said, how would you like to do this for my boss? And I said, sure. Who's your boss? And he said, uh, gentleman by the name of Al McIntyre. And he's like, the man. This is the guy that we've been trying to get in to see. And, I, and I'm very casually, I'm like, well, I guess I can, you know, fit it into my calendar. So I met Al McIntyre. He became a client and he became what was my career because they hired the firm I was working for at the time to do all of the financial planning seminars when they started doing the early retirement offers at New England Telephone, which today is Verizon. So we got the contract and that led us to having a very intimate relationship with the benefits people. And today, Verizon is still my number one source of clients. And I know more about their benefits packages than anybody else because I've been doing it now for nearly 30 years because that started in 1988. But along the way, you know, I joined Strategic Coach back in 1996 because I'd realized back then, Dan, that I had a different vision about what the financial planning industry needed to be. And that's because I was building relationships with these people from New England Telephone. And I realized that it had a lot less to do with selling them life insurance and mutual fund investment. And it was more about really helping them plan for their lives and not just planning for their lives, but their loved ones and then transferring that wealth to the next generation. And what really did that for me was one of my very first clients. And this is what really opened my eyes to that, which was he become a client and this was in the early 1990s, and I worked with him to get him prepared to retire. He had a significant amount of wealth for that time, and that was well over a million dollars by the time he retired. He retired on December 31st, and then I got a phone call from the family in the middle of February, and they had a house in Florida, and they lived in New Hampshire at the time, and I said, well, what are you doing back? They're like, oh, well, you know, Art is not feeling well, and we came back to go to the doctor. Well, he was diagnosed with acute leukemia and died 10 days after. 
And I got a fax from him from his deathbed asking me to take care of his family. Mm -hmm. And I still have it to this day. I and mean, that's my reminder of what my real job mm -hmm. is, to take care of people. So that really fit well into the whole strategic coach program for me, simply because the tools that I've learned over these years has led me to be very clear about what it is that I do do for my clients mm -hmm. and then also structure my company today, Financial Foundations, around that for our advisors here, giving them direction and giving them insight and capability and then really making sure that our clients have that unique client experience that they really can't get anywhere else. Mm -hmm. How big is the operation, Nick? I mean, you're not just a single advisor. You've got an organization. Yeah, yeah right. So we manage north of $600 million. We have seven advisors on staff and some 14 other support staff people, marketing and administrative and, and the like. Yeah. I mean, it's really interesting because your life is really a series of changing your game. Your father's, was it an accident that he had? Yeah, the roof collapsed and he fell through the roof of the building. So that, for a 14-year-old, you had to change the game there. No money to go to college, you had to change the game there. Came out of college and you had to change a game. So what we're seeing now... I've sort of said that my life changed drastically on April 10th, which is six weeks ago, because when I did the first Game Changer workshop, I came out and I says, you know, right from the beginning, starting with the Lifetime Extender, all the concepts and tools in the program changes people's game in some way. Like you thought you were going to live to 80, but now you think you're going to live to 95. That 15-year difference in the number actually shifts a lot of other thoughts in your life, including things like how long am I going to work and everything. So my sense is that you're a natural game changer for yourself. I get a sense that you're in the realm of changing the game for your customers. And sounds to me like you've changed the game for the people who work in your organization. So we're going to talk about the mindset scorecard. And I want to ask you the question, what was it about the mindset scorecard that allowed you to play the game differently once you have put together your mindset scorecard? Well, that's a great question, Dan. You know, what makes this insightful for me is that I was able to take everything that I've done for the last 15 plus years and actually put it on paper in a manner that is clearly organized and I'm able to communicate it to the rest of my team. So there's a progression when you do the scorecard based on, you know, what would be considered quote unquote failure and then what would be transformative mm -hmm. and really being able to identify those different stages within the eight different mindsets that we've identified for the ideal business model was very much a game changer because by doing this and then being able to then communicate it to the rest of my team, they're like, okay, I get where we're going. So Every 90 days now, we give ourselves a grade. You know, we go back to the scorecard and we ask ourselves, what do we get last quarter? Where do we want to go next quarter? You know, what is the one thing that we want to get done in the next 90 days in these eight different mindsets that's going to continuously move us to being transformative all the time? And once you get there, the other aha moment is that once you get there, that's not the end. It's just the beginning. Yes. You get there, you got to stay there. Right. And so there's always going to be that next best thing that will help you, you know, maintain that transformative attitude 
because the industry is constantly changing as well. Mm-hmm. You have to use this in an adaptive manner where your team is committed and engaged and they also recognize what it is that they need to do in order to continue to increase our own competitive advantages. Right. Now, Nick, as I understand it, this is an internal scorecard for your own company, right? It is currently. Yeah, but I mean, I'm just seeing that any customer that you would sit down with, this would be enormously clarifying for you fairly quickly in a conversation about whether someone actually responded, because they're very compelling statements. So I'll just give the listeners who are listening to Inside Strategic Coach here. The first one is branding. And there's four choices of statements here. You are not known within your community for who you are and what you do. That's a score of 1, 2, 3. We can end up with 10, 11, 12. 1, 2, 3 is not good. 4, 5, 6, your clients recognize what products you sell them, who you are, and what you represent, okay? That's 4, 5, and 6. Number 7, 8, and 9, you have an established brand in your community. People know who you are and what you do. And then the real zone or the sweet spot is 10, 11, 12. So that was 7, 8, 9, and 10, 11, 12. You are known for a unique client experience that can only be achievable through your brand. Okay, so this is very interesting. So what I'm guessing about this, this is a crystallization of your 30 years in the field. I mean, this is not only you starting off with cold calls at nighttime, but now having an organization with over 20 people. This is real wisdom that's distilled in a choice of statements. Very much so. You know, this is also where my relationship with you and the coach program has been so important because this is my unique process. So our unique process here at Financial Foundations is called the Personal Foundation Builder. That's the other scorecard for them. And we have the other scorecard for that as well. There's five steps into our unique process, and then we broke that down into a front stage and a backstage. And so it gives the ability to clearly communicate delegations on both fronts. So, you know, we know what we're doing every step of the process from the interaction with the advisor to the client and then the the backstage staff as well. And I'll give you just one quick, for instance, is when we engage a client and the client sends back their service agreement, that initiates the next step for our marketing department, sends out a gift. We have a, a series of different gifts. The advisor picks a welcome gift that we want to have the sense to the client. So you know that's part of that unique client experience. They're not really expecting that. They get it. And, you know, depending upon what time of year, we have different variations. You know, gift baskets full of fruit or nuts or whatever. And, And they become wildly appreciative. You know, they're like, wow, that's really Mm -hmm. thoughtful. But it also shows them that we're engaged in the relationship and showing our appreciation back to them as well. So, you know, our process is full of those little nuances. So that way, when the client is done, they become a raving fan. Mm -hmm. Part of the process I teach to the advisors is that you have to make two sales. You know, you have to make the money sale where you're generating revenue for the firm. Then you have to make the referral sale. You have to get the next client in as well because all of our clients come by way of introduction. So the only way you're going to ever get that introduction, that referral sale, is if you exceed the client's expectations. Mm -hmm. So 
what are we going to do to exceed expectations? And that all talks to that branding and it all talks to the, the unique process. Yeah. You're an observer and you've put 30 years in during a very tumultuous period in the financial services industry. I predate you because I started with financial advisors when you were probably about 13, 14 years old. And in the 80s, I could see a tremendous shift coming because I was also dealing with people who were taking advantage of the personal computer, which I think is one of the the two things from my standpoint changed the financial services business the most, especially the life insurance industry was the personal computer where an agent could now exhibit capabilities, first of all, databases, then the ability to compare products right across the industry, but also communication capabilities, which got greater and greater. That was the one. The other one was universal life. I think that universal life was a great breach in the walls because prior to universal life, the separate financial sectors had walls between them. There was the general insurance industry. There was the life insurance industry. There were the banks. There were the credit unions and everything else. And then there was, of course, the investment houses. And there were walls between you stay on your side of the wall, we'll stay. But universal life was a breach because they were saying, yeah, it's life insurance, but it's got kind of looks like a mutual fund. We're going to add a mutual fund to it. And the moment that universal life breached the wall, everybody says, well, if they're breaching walls, we're all going to breach walls. And I felt that the agent system, and you were Phoenix. Right. And I can remember, uh, was Sid Friedman Phoenix Life at that time? Yeah. Yep. That's yep. a way back name. Yeah. Yep. And I can remember that these guys, you know, and these were the top of the table agents in the 70s and 80s. I said, these are like the last of the gunfighters. These are the last of the Wild West gunfighters. I said, what's going to happen? The people who are going to end up running the life insurance companies aren't going to have any experience with life insurance at all. Well, a mutual company, the mutuals have done the best out of this because they could still have their allegiance to their field force. They could still have their allegiance to their policyholders. But once the company went equity, they went into the stock market, the agent system couldn't survive because they're looking at a field force where you you bring in 10 in year one and you still have one in year five. You're paying the manager for recruiting where he's going to be 90% unsuccessful, and you're paying. I said, you know, stock market's going to look at this, and they're going to say, well, this is crazy. Let's just get rid of it. But you've been through that entire period, and I think the reason was that your early experience was with the mutual company, because if you look at the great survivors, you know, it's New York Life, Northwestern, you know, you have these, and they're all mutual companies. They're not equity companies. As much as the others, they didn't become financial services companies. They stayed as life insurance companies. And that everybody who went financial services wished they could just go back to life insurance after a while. So talk about that in terms of the whole changing game that's actually been the industry that you're in and how having things like the scorecard have actually given you a sense of stability and simplicity that around you, other people aren't enjoying? Yeah, that's a great insightful question. So I would say that the biggest game changer that I've experienced in the last 20, 25 year career 
was the death of the pensions. That was the game changer because that's what made my relationship with New England Telephone so enjoyable was that my customers, my clients, you know, they were all retiring with a pension. So they would go to a company, they would work there for 30 or 35 years. And so mm. they've had clients there that would work there for 40 years. And, you know, they would walk out with a 401k plan that they had matched and had grown. And then they would also have a significant pension and social security and very debt adverse. So they were, if not completely debt free on the precipice of being debt free at the time of retirement. So they had a lot of certainty in their retirement. They had a lot of contractual income. They had their pension income. They had social security income. They always learned to live within their means. And so their investment portfolios. They owned their house. They owned their home. And so their kids were off. Kids were educated and gone. And so their investment portfolios were there for extra. It wasn't there for the basics. And that all changed in the early 19, mid 1990s for the most part, Mm -hmm. where companies began recognizing that pension funds were unsustainable. So they shut down pension funds by distributing lump sums, which in the 90s, I was a benefactor of because people would have a large pension lump sum, their 401k plan, we would invest it, and they made far more money in their investment portfolio than they would have in their pension. And that worked very well right up until the dot-com bomb in 2000. And then once the market corrected in 2000, and then we experienced 9-11 in 2001, and then the ensuing corporate malfeasance scandals with Arthur Anderson and Enron, and you know, all of a sudden, you know, instead of getting double-digit returns, they were getting double-digit losses. And when you're taking out mid to high single-digit distribution from your portfolio, when your portfolio is now losing double digits a year, it doesn't take long for all of a sudden you to be in a lot of trouble meaning that yeah. you're going to run out of money in retirement. So that changed my game. Yeah, and I'm just reflecting on your transformative column for branding and for engagement and for service. So this is tricky. I mean, you used to be on board a really solid river craft, and now you're on logs. So how are you maintaining your balance and maintaining the service and maintaining the commitment to the clients when all this stuff is happening, not only in the economy, but actually within the industry itself, where the companies are falling? You know, Not only couldn't deliver the pension to their customers, they couldn't deliver pensions to their own employees. There were some very difficult times and, you know, there were some very sleepless nights, but I went back to my experience with New England Telephone and recognized that contractual retirement income was paramount to the ultimate success of an individual. And so what was still available back in the early 2000s, mid 2000s were independent annuity contracts. So what we did is, is that we took a lot of our pensioners and got them their own private annuity, anchoring their financial plan and saying, this is the money that is going to be there for you forever. You will never run out of money during retirement. And that served me incredibly well because today, you know, we have recovered, the market's recovered, everything has done well. And these annuity contracts had a living benefit associated to them. So they continued to experience all the gains in the market. They never gave any of those gains back. And their future income is based on that high watermark. So 
that's really what saved me. And we still do it today, meaning that there are really some good contracts out there from a product perspective that suits the bill for what we want to be in transformative as far as the client experience. You know, when we take a value statement for our clients, financial security is embedded in the first few sentences. So when we talk about financial security, we talk about contractual retirement income that you will not outlive. And everybody says, yes, I want that. It kind of mm-hmm. reminds me of one of your books, Dan, The Self-Managing Company, right? <laughs> and when, yeah. How many people want that? We all raised our hands, right? You know, like, self-managing company. I don't know what it is, but sign me up for it. So you know, contractual yeah. retirement income that I won't outlive, yeah, sign me up. That's yeah. important. So, Nick, in terms of your value creation, and I know you've been very constant about that because, you know, you always tell good stories in the workshop when you come to the workshop about how you're going about developing your own company, but the value creation proposition in the marketplace. Would it be fair to say that you've actually taken advantage to a certain extent of the inability of large institutions to actually deliver the goods And while that's a bad thing, that's also been a good thing for branding yourself and differentiating yourself in the marketplace, because you can provide the certainty that used to come with the contract, but now it has to be a unique design that you're actually creating for them, which actually gives you the opportunity to reinforce that you're very different from the way that other people are approaching it. Yeah. And I think that the differentiating factor there too, Dan, is that We're also talking to the client about the next generation because the one downfall about the old pension plans that we used back with New England Telephone is that when the client and the client's spouses died, the pension died with them. Our design is that it moves on to the next generation. So the multiplier that you get from the ability to not only capture full value for both husband and spouse, create contractual retirement income that you won't outlive, and pass on a significant wealth transfer to the next generation, well, that's the holy grail, so to speak. You know, that's where the client recognizes that and their level of appreciation just becomes so significant that they can't help themselves but to refer me to other customers and clients. And that's the referral sale. So we're very successful in achieving that. So here's an impression I get from our interview. There's actually two Nick Constantinos, and one of them is this hard knocks, blue collar, work 70, 80 hours a week, whatever job's available, work, and then when you have some time, you actually study, you put yourself through college and everything else. And on the other hand, there's a very sophisticated, very strategic, what I would say, brand developer unique process developer. So are you aware of the two Nicks that show up? And what does the one add to the other? In other words, what does the up from the streets Nick add to the, I would say kind of lethal, actually, I'll use the word lethal, you know, charming guy, but kind of a killer as far as, (laughs) not that, but enormously caring. I mean, you're enormously caring and you want to really do well. I mean, that's coming through the message. You want to really do well for your customers. So are you aware of these two gears? I am today. You know, it's interesting. I, my peers and friends see it more readily than I do, just because, you know, I'm living it. So I don't necessarily see it as readily as my friends and peers do. It's interesting. I had an old high school friend. This is really, you know, it's funny, Dan. 
you know, I've been doing this, as I said, for nearly 30 years. And so now my high school friends who are successful in their own right and business owners, they're calling me up and they're like, hey, you know, I need some financial planning advice. I'm like, oh, so you waited 30 years, right? You know, I've known you my entire adult life and now you want my advice. You know, they knew me way back when. And I think part of that hardworking blue collar is that I attribute it to like the circus stand where I had to operate the trapeze without any net. I was it. There was no falling down. There was no failure because I did not have a backup plan. There was no backup plan. The backup plan didn't exist. So failure was not an option. So when you work under that mindset that failure is not an option, you work harder than everybody else because you have to. Yes. And that was always what I did. And that was always really part of my work ethic. And then not only did you have to work harder than everybody else, and you had to be smarter than everybody else. Yeah. So then that's where the sophistication level comes in. Yeah. I can put in more hours, but what I learned from the strategic coach was, well, okay, how do we create more value? How do we scale? How do I multiply? How do I take you know, the one and one and make it three? And then that's really where the processes came in and that's where the branding comes in and the scorecards and the like. Yeah. So here's the thing. And it's just a little reflection on your reunion, your is a high school reunion? Yeah, it's high school reunion. You're talking about, well, the most successful person at any high school reunion after 60 is the one that other people at the reunion are writing checks to. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> They're packing it in, and you're jumping to another game. So that's another. Yeah, I'm just getting started. Yeah, so talk about that. Talk about where you are, because as near as I can figure, you're 55, 56? 52. 52, okay, yeah. So you're 52. So what's the future like compared to the past you've already had? So my bigger future, as I see it, is circled around this scorecard. Yep. I'm going to be able to take my knowledge and wisdom, package it, brand it, and effectively look to transform the financial services industry on my model, where we talked earlier about the agency model and how you know the mutual companies were, and then the stock companies broke that whole thing up. So, so what's the new model today for financial planning, for financial advising, right? And so I think that this is it. I think that this is the way that the future of the financial mm -hmm. services industry will grow and thrive because the agency model as it stands today is broken. You can't recruit 10 and then have one. You know, that math doesn't work. Okay. So there's another scorecard that I have, which is our associate advisor program. So, you know, that's what I did 15 years ago is I created a program here at Financial Foundations, which is called the Associate Advisor Program. And I took everything that I learned at Strategic Coach and, you know, laid out how I could bring in a young professional and mentor them through the backstage components of learning how to become an advisor and then transform them into the field so that way they're able to actually become a producing advisor. And so that's the backbone of Financial Foundations is our Associate Advisor Program. So I look at that and in the context of that and having this ideal business mindset, because there are so many advisors out there, they haven't really thought through the future. And the future is not necessarily their retirement as much as it is as their exit, right? So how do you monetize the value of your business? 
that in our industry has not been addressed mm. in a manner where there's a proven methodology for doing that. So, Well, the two things the industry hasn't figured out are the on-ramp and the exit. Yeah, the, right. Get, the on-ramp and the off-ramp. That's exactly right. And so my two scorecards are about the on-ramp and the off-ramp. Okay, because if you can do that well, you know, then you really have a self-managing company. It operates without you being there. It has scale. It has branding. It has all the components of your being able to really grow it beyond what you'd be able to just do individually. So all my advisors that are here went through that program. I have people at different stages in the program. And I think that that's my future. My future is working in that realm and within my business multiplying the client experience where there are 10 NICs out there, 20 NICs out there, 50 NICs out there, and really, you know, getting the word out in that manner. Nick, I always ask when I interview someone, what did you learn from your thinking in response to my questions? (laughs) Yeah, um, you know, Dan, I always enjoy coming to the workshops and I always enjoy talking with you because I have learned early on that the power of listening Responding to questions and speaking solidifies your thinking. And having this conversation with you today makes me even more committed to the mindset scorecard that I created around the ideal business model than even before. Your last two comments, the on-ramp and the off-ramp, I can go home now, Dan. (laughs) And it happens to me every coach session. Literally within the first half an hour, every coach workshop that I come through, I'm like, I got it. You know, the rest of my day is, is extra, right? So on ramp, off ramp, I'm good for the day. Nick, a great pleasure. And we're going to share this with everybody in the Coach Network. I just want to say it's just been a, a wonderful pleasure to spend, you know, an hour with you. And first of all, I love the history of entrepreneurs and you've got a great one. But we'll see you soon. You know, it's a couple of weeks. Thank you very much for the opportunity today. I really enjoyed it. Thank you, Nick. Bye. 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 